The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now, here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA show, EDU edition for this week. Uh, This week, we're going to continue with a uh, annuity-related topic, this being National Annuity Awareness Month. Um, in that email from last week, there was a listener who had written in and was essentially kind of asking, um, in their particular circumstance, would they even consider an annuity? And we've kind of been describing how we, um, with certain cases, consider annuities to fit as part of someone's retirement plan. Not in every case. And uh, we're kind of going to continue our discussion here, uh, Jim and I, about in what cases would we really consider it, in other cases where it's maybe not necessarily appropriate, but where the discussion of an annuity really fits within our concept of covering your minimum dignity floor with secure income and ultimately getting to this thing we call your fund number, that purely discretionary pool of funds that you can spend uh, on your whim, if you will, because your other more important, and by important, that's kind of your designation because it's your plan. The other more important goals or expenses that you might have have been dealt with elsewhere. So if that all sounds strange to you, just keep listening for a while. And we, we talk about this frequently enough that you'll get get uh, kind of where we're coming from pretty quickly, I think. So Jim, um, if you're ready, we can kind of pick up, I, I guess, essentially where we left off with this email from last week. Exactly. I am, uh, I am ready. I'm here in the office. Chris is in his home office, and yours truly is actually in the office office, mm-hmm. but not at my nice microphone in the uh, what Chris likes to call the penthouse suite, but is really the I, I honestly think this microphone sounds better than the other one. You're so, kidding, really? Because no. I was ready to tell people I might so- not sound as good as I usually do. No, I think we might actually want you to use this one at your house, too, but that would be moving it back and forth. I actually have one of these at my house. I bought two. Oh, well, 
We might be switching, we'll but talk a, about that's this a discussion later, for another day. <laughs> yeah. Not live on the podcast, <laughs> right. but yes, maybe when I record from my home studio, I'll use this. Uh, yeah. It's it's called the Blue uh, Snowball or something like that mm-hmm. microphone, right? Yep. Yeah. Now, I've got one at home as well. Unless I gave it to one of the juniors. I might have gave it to a junior, actually. If not, I'll take it back if I gave it to him. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. But, um, yeah, we can use this microphone as well. Alrighty, folks. Anyways, uh, we're going to continue where we left off. I don't want to waste too, too much time because we're getting late in the day. And even though Chris is home, yours truly has to drive home still. And I tell you, folks, leaving at five o'clock, it's crazy trying to get out of the city. Just 10 minutes early, I make all the difference in the world on how quickly I can get through the city uh, to get home. I think it takes me as much time to get through the city as it does from the city to get to Bertha. It's, it's that that crazy. Yeah. Okay, so we left off last week. It was a, a woman who sent us an email, and uh, she's from New York. Her, her trivia was the 18th president was buried in that state. I don't know if I read that trivia question. I don't, think, I don't remember that I, one, so I don't think you did. Well, I gave away the answer. The 18th pre- – I had to Google who the 18th president was. Do you know off the top of your head? Don't Google it. I don't know. Um... He, he won the Civil War, some say. S- some say? Some say, depends what side you were on. (laughs) Who? Grant. Grant, yes. Grant is buried in New York. Interesting. Hmm. I did not know that. I didn't either. Now I do. I I know the joke, who's buried in Grant's tomb, but uh, Grant's tomb is in New York. And she is from the state where the 18th president was buried, and I had to Google it, and that was Grant. Okay. She has a rather straightforward situation, albeit probably more of an anomaly than a norm in the amount of assets that she has. We didn't get to that in the first email. What I wanted to do with this email, I thought it would lend itself well to how I want you guys to think of annuities. Chris and I are not pushing annuities. If you're a new listener, Yes, we're dedicating a bunch of shows in June like we have done for the last one, maybe the last two Junes, I forget, because it's National Annuity Awareness Month. And it just gives me an opportunity to to do something different and talk about annuities uh, to you. We're trying to teach you about them. We come at this with no preconceived notions, none whatsoever. We don't sell annuities exclusively, even though three people at my firm do have insurance licenses, myself, Greg, and Andrew. We use annuities as a tool. We hate annuities, and we love some of them. I will admit, we got a, I got a cute email that I'll read on one show upcoming, where he made kind of a joke and provided me my, my first official a National Annuity Awareness Month card. Since Chris has never sent me a card, uh, this listener did. He sent that to me to pass on to you, I'm pretty sure. So oh, he sent you, it cons- to me as well. you can consider that from me. <laughs> no, it's from him. <laughs> it's from Lone Star George. And I like what he wrote in it. I like what he put in it. And I want to read it. He, he made some good points in there. And there's some other points in there that I disagree with him on. It's going to make a nice little discussion. But what I'm trying to do, what my intent 
on spending a month talking about annuities to you guys is to get you to understand where they may fit in. You don't have to use them, but it is not your decision. And don't lose sight of this. You might be sitting there thinking, whose decision is it, Jim? I don't get what you're talking about. The younger you is needing to learn all they can about annuities. So the older you will have the knowledge they need to make the decision on if they want to buy one or not. It is not your decision. Few people need to purchase an annuity at the start of retirement. There are some who do, but few. What I want to try to get everyone to understand is how we sometimes use annuities or let's just say use the calculation abilities of annuity companies, their their knowledge of mortality tables and the expertise of their actuaries to give us an idea how much money our clients need to reserve to protect their minimum dignity floor. Even though we may never use an annuity at all, I think this email may fall into that category, Chris. So I'm trying to get you to understand that annuities or annuity companies can provide value in retirement if you understand them. I do want to stress, Chris and I are talking about a very specific type of annuity that we prefer using. It is a fixed annuity, and it's called a single premium immediate annuity. It is the purest, most boring type of annuity there is. Few people ever buy them. They, few people ever buy them for a simple reason. The industry, more so the people who offer annuities, hardly ever recommend them because they pay so little in a commission. They're just boring. They don't pay much, but they do, in our opinion, a very crucial thing. They pay you a lifetime stream of income you cannot outlive. That's the annuity we're talking about. There are many other annuities. We'll dive into them on future shows. Those are the annuities that get a lot of the bad press. They're very complex. They're very opaque. They're very expensive. They commission a boatload of dollars to the agents and brokers selling them. That's not the annuities we're talking about. There are newer annuities that have a lot of the opaqueness and complexity, but they don't commission. Those are called fee-based annuities. We're not really talking about them, but I'll explain to you guys on future shows what those annuities are as well. We'll make sure we cover them. But for this email and for most of the time when Chris and I talk about annuities, we're talking about a single premium immediate annuity that pays a lifetime stream of income in exchange for a lump sum of money from you. You get a stream of income for the rest of your life you cannot outlive. It is the mirror opposite of life insurance, where in exchange for a yearly premium you pay to the insurance company, your beneficiaries will get a lifetime payout upon your death. The mirror opposite to that, single premium immediate annuity. In exchange for a lifetime sum of money, lump sum of money, 
excuse me, a one-time lump sum of money you pay in to the product, you will get a stream of annual payments coming out for as long as you live. Or if you bought a joint and survivor, as long as both of you live. And one of the other reasons, folks, I like single premium immediate annuities, they are incredibly easy for the insurance company to hedge the risk of selling. Do you know how they do it, Chris? How they would hedge the risk of people living a very long time? Well, the risk pool does that. The risk pool does. But what insurance, and Chris is correct on that, by selling these products to tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in each annuity pool, the insurance company can can uh, run or mitigate the, the risk of everybody dying way, way too late. But the way they do it truly on their books, if you will, they write more life insurance. Right. It's why when you run annuity quotes, if you're a, an advisor out there and you run a new single premium media annuity quotes, you might see one insurance company at the top all the time coming in with the better amount of income. And then all of a sudden they drop to six, seven, eight, nine, tenth on the list. And you might be thinking, what's going on? They don't need as much business anymore. They use single premium media annuities to offset life insurance and vice versa. With life insurance, the big risk, folks, is what? People dying way too soon. When you, the insurance company is hoping you live your full life expectancy and they're planning the premiums are coming in. They know a certain number of them will die too soon and they'll lose money on them. But if the entire pool lives to life expectancy, they feel they can walk away with a profit. Well, the worst thing for them would be something like COVID, just 10 times more deadly. And all of a sudden, people who paid in one or two years premiums are dying, and the insurance company has to pay out hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of uh, claims. So to hedge the risk of people dying too soon... You buy annuities where the risk to the insurance company is you live too long. If you, if a lot of people who bought single premium media annuities start to die early, it can help offset the risk to the insurance company of life insurance people dying too early because they have two different um, payouts or, or two different impacts to the insurance company's balance sheet. If you stop and think about it, they're the mirror opposite. So there's no better way to hedge annuity risk than to write life insurance and life insurance than to write annuities. So you often see single premium media annuities being used that way. It's one of the reasons I like them. Trying to hedge the risk of a variable annuity with a lifetime withdrawal benefit, incredibly complex, incredibly difficult for insurance companies to do. Single premium immediate annuities and permanent life insurance, not any of the funky permanent life insurance, but just a standard permanent life insurance or a no frills UL or something like that. The two of them offset the risk perfectly. That's another reason Chris and I like them. We feel confident that the insurance company can handle the risk of these annuities because they, they can, yes, reinsure some of the risk of people living a very long time when they purchase annuities but they can also offset it with life insurance. Okay, 
We left off last time with the person, and go back and listen to last week's. We left off at secure income. We were helping walk this person through the minimum dignity floor and things of that nature, trying to explain the concept we have that food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses, what I affectionately call the minimum dignity floor, are a series of expenses that will continue for the rest of your life. We feel that should be covered with lifetime secure income, social security, pension, and income annuities. As you're going to see with this writer, they have no pension. They have no current annuities. They want to know if they think they should get an annuity or not. They just have Social Security. But they have a minimum dignity floor, according to this email, that's that's quite, quite high, quite significant. How do we help them figure out if they need an annuity or not? How do you figure out if you need an annuity or not? Your job as the younger you is to figure out how much money you need to reserve for the older you, and it's going to be their decision on if they buy an income annuity or not, not yours. Remember, I told you, and I believe passionately in this, our job or your purpose is to make sure the younger you promises the older you that their food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses are taken care of for life as best you can. And in return, the older you will give you a permission to spend on fun, what we call your fun number. Well, in order to give that promise and get that permission, you have to look at annuities. You have to decide if you're going to need one And as Chris will explain how he uses insurance companies and their actuaries to help him come up with a lump sum that should be reserved. How do we come up with how much you should reserve to cover your income shortage? We go to the insurance industry and get that number from them. Who knows better than the insurance industry on how much someone should reserve to provide a lifetime stream of guaranteed income. So you're going to see, even if you don't want an annuity, you might use annuity companies to get the information you need. So what is this concept secure income? It's pretty straightforward. It's a definition that I created. It's just a concept that I created. I didn't get this from any textbook. But I said to me, secure income should be first, predetermined and known. There should be no ambiguity. I shouldn't be guessing each year how much I think you might get. So you can clearly see something like royalties, which in Colorado, we see a lot of royalties because people have water rights and people have mineral rights in the state of Colorado. Royalties, I think you'll agree, Chris, all over the place on how much you get each year, correct? Yeah, very very volatile in most cases. Not not all, but it's it's uh, just the nature of the type of uh, material we'll call it because it could be royalties on practically anything that's that's out there. Um, just tend to be up and down with you know market forces and and other things. So right. certainly not as predictable as we would hope for our definition of secure income. So the first part predetermined and known. No ambiguity. Second part, if the income moves at all, and it may not move, it may stay static, 
But if it moves at all, it can only move up. Just like a ratchet. If you understand a ratchet set, now you can adjust if it's going to move to the left or right. But depending on what you have adjusted it to, it can only move to the left or it can only move to the right. Well, secure income should be like that ratchet. If it moves at all, it only moves up. And third, the income is not backed by your own portfolio. It's backed by a deep-pocketed third party who is essentially pooling the risk. Rather than you putting $300,000 off to the side, I'm just making that number up, folks, putting $300,000 off to the side and trying to withdraw a certain amount of money from it for the rest of your life, you could pool that $300,000 with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of other people. And in case your $300,000 ran out because you lived long enough, there's other money in that pool that can be used to continue to pay you. So it's not backed exclusively by you. You are not assuming the risk on your own. The best analogy I have to risk pooling is a zebra on the Serengeti. Do you ever wonder why fish school zebra herd? If you're a zebra on the Serengeti, let's just say it's the rainy season and the grass is all green and blowing in the wind and there's water everywhere and you're a happy zebra all by yourself, you think life is great. You got all this grass and it's breezy and it's cool and there's water and life is wonderful. Until a pride of hungry lions come by and you're the only dinner there. That's why zebras herd. There's still going to be a zebra going down. But if you are one zebra in 10,000, you stand a much better chance of getting away from that hungry pride of lions than if you were the only zebra. If you are trying to manage your lifetime guarantee or lifetime, I don't want to say guarantee because if you're doing it yourself, it's not guaranteed. If you are trying to manage a lifetime stream of income that you are going to need to promise the older you that their food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care will be taken care of no matter what happens to the economy, no matter what happens geopolitically, no matter what happens politically or militarily. All these issues, no matter if interest rates are going up or down, stock market is up, down, sideways, whatever happens, you have to make that promise to the older you that they're Minimum dignity floor is taken care of. If you're trying to do it on your own set budget, you may fail. You may be that zebra all by itself. But if you pooled not all of your retirement money, not the retirement money that you might need for aging or guaranteed inheritance or money that you would like to leave for an emergency buffer for anything, things that don't even have to do with minimum dignity floor, not for fun, those dollars can stay. You don't have to pool all those. But food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care, very broad categories of very important expenses. If you pooled those risks, if you heard them, yes, you might still run out of money. But there's thousands of other people in that pool, and their dollars can go to support you. It's essentially financial hurting. You can be that animal by itself on the Serengeti, 
Uh, you can be one of many in a herd, and you just got to run faster than the zebra next to you. Anything you want to add on that, Chris? No, I think uh, you know you devised the the idea of not that these income sources didn't exist prior to to us <laughs> being in existence, but you kind of having that formal definition of secure income um, and and created that test, if you will, when you look at an income source to see if it meets the qualifications, um, you explained it quite well, which you'd think the inventor of those definitions would do. So congratulations. Well, thank you. One thing, when you're doing this, because I know when we do this, I know when Chris does this and he can chime in, if we have clients with non-secure income, royalties, rental payments, interest, dividends, we count those as part of their minimum dignity floor shortages. We don't tell people, oh, we're not going to count those. You still have to go out and buy an annuity. We just warn clients that we may have to replace those dollars. Now, Chris, why don't you explain why all non-secure income sources are not created the same? Because there's a big difference, folks, if you own a $400,000 home that you're making $30,000 a year of rent in and you lose that $30,000 of rent as opposed to having $30,000 a year of royalties and you eventually lose that because the well ran dry. What's the big difference, Chris? Well, there's um, certain income that's derived from an asset that likely will retain its value. That's going to be different than um, an asset that can disappear, right? A, a well that can run dry, if you will. Um, a rental property, if you own the property behind it, yes, the income source is there. But um, as long as you own the property free and clear, it doesn't have much debt on it. There's a lot of net equity there, a lot of value there that if you're in have this home in a relatively attractive location, it's likely that it's going to retain its value and, and grow oftentimes over time. So if the income became disrupted, maybe it became more difficult to rent it, arguably that could reduce the value of the home a little bit, but it doesn't go to zero, right? It doesn't go to zero. There's a significant value of the actual asset, which you then could sell and convert into a more, you know, one of our more traditional secure income sources. Um, so, it really depends uh, when you have one of these atypical income sources, whether we would kind of feel comfortable lumping it in with other secure income sources or not. A highly leveraged, you know, your your 80% uh, debt on the property and, and it's got good positive cash flow and you've got that income, that's very different than cash flow coming from a, an asset that's completely paid off. So those are just a couple of the aspects that we look at to decide if it is reasonable to count it as a quasi-secure income source. Right, because remember what we're trying to do, folks. We're trying to give you the promise, the older you, the promise, and in return get permission to spend on fun. Well, the older you doesn't exist. The younger you does. So it's very easy for the younger you to give the promise to the older you. We just have to do the calculations. But to come up with the fun number that the older you is going to give you permission to spend when the older you don't really live here yet. We also have to continue to crunch numbers. And if you have different income sources that don't quite fit our definition of secure income, we don't ignore them. 
However, if you had 30,000 a year of royalties and 30,000 a year of rental income, but you own the home free and clear, in the home case, in the real estate case, we may not tell the person we've got to pull more money out of your assets, therefore lowering your fund number, obviously. We don't tell them we have to pull more money out because we honestly do feel in m- most cases, 99% of the time, the remaining value of the home will be able to create an income stream equal to or greater than the rental income was generating. But if you have royalties, especially royalties that you don't really own the underlying asset to, you just have a royalty on. And if that thing ran dry, your royalty is is essentially worthless. You might get a little bit for it, but not much. We may tell you, you've got to put some money aside. We don't want you spending it on fun. Because if the royalties go in the future, the older you could be in trouble. And you have to promise the older you that they won't be in trouble. And the only way you can make that promise is going to be to put some assets aside. So think of that, folks. When you're trying to walk through these calculations on your own, you might be sitting there thinking, well, I've got interest and I've got dividends and I've got royalties and I've got rental income and I have this, that, and the other thing. I don't know. We see all different types of income sources sometimes. Make sure that if it ran dry, if there's good, if there's a chance that there's nothing underlying of value, you might want to put some assets off to the side and not spend it on fun. Because you need to promise the older you. The older you can't figure this out when he or she is 80, 83, 87, 90, 94, 99. It's going to be too late for them to figure this all out and not fair to make them try to figure it out. They may not have the mental capacity to figure it out. So you need to make sure you do that. If it's not secure income with my three-part definition, if it's not backed by an asset as well, Put some dollars aside. And if it is backed by an asset, say an investment account, and you're counting on that 30000 of dividends or interest every year, you can't also count on that asset to be spent on fun. You can't spend a dollar twice. If you're going to reserve a portfolio of, of 700000 I'm just making that number up, and you're going to live off of that interest in dividends and you project that those interest and in dividends uh, should cover some of your minimum dignity for shortage. Great. And gee, Jim, I don't need an annuity. Great. I agree. But you can't then spend that money on fun as well. You can't be counting on those dollars to be used later for something else because those dollars have to sit there to generate the income that the older you is going to need. Do keep that in mind. Okay. So the woman continued and she laid out, and I'm not going to get into it all, but she laid out her net worth and she actually heard last week's show and she wrote and told me that there was an additional 420,000 she forgot to tell me about in an IRA that she had inherited as well. When I add up all her assets, and I'll give her credit, she's got pretty good diversification. She doesn't have a lot in... um, Never taxable assets. She has 300000 in never taxable assets. The remaining assets, which is about $8 million, is about 50-50 between always taxable and maybe taxable. There's only 300000 in never taxable Roths. 
but she essentially has an $8 million net worth with about half of it in always taxable IRAs and 401ks and half of it in maybe taxable brokerage accounts. We say maybe taxable because it might not be taxable when you start taking money out. Basis can come out of your brokerage accounts tax-free if you manipulate your income, and this couple's probably gonna have difficulty doing that, but other people could manipulate their income where some capital gains are taxed as zero. And then when they pass away, it could be inherited tax-free with a step up in basis. So that's why we say it may be taxable, may be taxable and always taxable IRAs and 401ks. 50-50, straightforward, Chris? I think so. Here's her gist, folks. Now, you might be sitting there saying, wow, with $8 million, no, she doesn't need an annuity. And I might concede that, but she could also benefit from it, from what we talked about last week. The income annuity isn't just for people who might run out of money. It's for people who want to keep their finances simple in the future. I guess it's not only are you going to promise the older you they are taken care of, it's how much do you want to help the older you keep it simple? Do you want to force the 85, 90, 95-year-old you to be managing big portfolios and trying to figure this all out? Or do you want to keep it simple for the older you and purchase an annuity or at least give them the the education they will need for them to decide if they want to buy an annuity? A lifetime stream of payments is a lot easier for an 85-year-old to manage because there's nothing to manage. The money just comes in every month on a certain day, automatically right into your checking account, as opposed to handing them a $3.8 million portfolio and saying, hey, you manage this. So do keep that in mind. Okay, her questions. We don't have a pension. I'm still working, but my husband is not. I expect to work until my early to mid 60s. They are both 59 years old, just like yours truly. So they are both 59. They, she expects to work, I would say, a couple more years, another three to five years based on what she just wrote. Husband's already retired. I expect, and you may want to chime in, so I'm just going to read this statement, and then I'll let you chime in, Chris. I expect we will both wait till 70 and defer our Social Security. Do you want to say anything there or not? It's hard when you're trying to make a social security decision without view of everything else. Now she's been sharing a lot of stuff with us and you want the benefit amounts that they have just so you know. Sure. She said at her age 67, she will get 43,000. Remember they're the same age. She will get 40. 3,900, let's call it 44,000. So at her age 67, she gets 44,000. At 70, she will get $54,000. Her husband at 64 will get $33,000. And at age 70, he will get $40,000. Did you mean to say 64 there? At age 64? You said at age 64. No, it's 67. Okay. 
They're both the same age. That's, so what, I, she that's gave, what I thought. And then you, yeah. When you said 64, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. I missed something. I say, remember, I have a dead spot in my yeah. head, right? No, you remember okay. that? I'm just making sure I'm working with all the facts. Make sure you understand. Ever, so. mm-hmm. I could sometimes make an error mm-hmm. and not even know it. You know, if they're trying to build the largest amount of lifetime inflation-adjusted secure income for themselves as a couple, the way to do that is both of them delay to 70. Um, if that's not the reason they're doing it, then they might want to consider other options. But um, one thing to always remember is the lower benefit, which is the husband's, the lower benefit is going to disappear when the first of you passes away. Either one of you passing away, that one disappears. So statistically, waiting till 70 for that one may not give you the most lifetime income since it, by its very nature, is going to stop sooner than the other one. That doesn't mean it's a bad idea to both claim at 70. It really depends on their circumstances. And if they have, I've seen this actually a number of times where uh, the easiest way to get them to cover their minimum dignity floor um, with secure income is to have both delay to 70. It just creates that. That's enough. It gets them over the hump, essentially, to effectively cover their minimum dignity floor. And that's uh, comforting to a lot of people with the simplicity of just making that choice. They're not even bringing in a conversation of annuities for the um, for the couple. Where one might spring forth is after the first of you passes away and one of those social securities disappears. Oftentimes, then a little bit of a shortage shows up. But there's a, there's ways to mitigate that. They have, you know, this particular couple has a whole bunch of other assets, so there's really not a question would they be able to come up with it. But you know, it's it's nuanced. Um, the only way to know, you know, if your game, if 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 your goal is to get the most out of Social Security possible before you die, I can tell you the strategy the day after you die. Right, because then then we know the numbers. Before that, it's all just estimates, and you got to treat Social Security, I guess, in the way that provides you the most value. And some people value that lifetime income being as big as possible, which delaying to seventy gets you. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, it is a, a tough one to decide. They're going to have to look at their health expectancy and and the break even of both of you waiting to 70 could mean both of you need to live well into your 80s before it makes sense. So it's a tough one to tell both of you to delay, but I am certainly not going to hazard a guess on if you should or shouldn't. But just take that into account and and consider that. Uh, Obviously, with her having the larger of the two benefits, she should be the one delaying to 70. And then the husband which is still a very generous benefit, <clears throat> but about 10000 less uh, at age 70 than the wife, he may want to consider taking his a little earlier. But they should crunch the numbers and look at their health. If they both think they could live well into their 90s, both of them delaying to their 70s could make sense. Okay, here's where it gets <clears throat> even deeper, folks. So you can see they've got some secure income, Social Security, some decisions to make on it, But it's not going to be enough to cover uh, everything they need or or feel they'll need because their minimum dignity floor, they've done the calculations, their minimum dignity floor is $130,000 a year and growing, growing for inflation. I think it would be a safe assumption to inflate a minimum dignity floor at about 6%, maybe five point something, but... I would err on the side of caution and say close to six, perhaps. Minimum dignity floor expenses of food, utilities, 
transportation, housing, health care, those all go up at greater inflation rates than general inflation. Keep that in mind. Okay, they have a minimum dignity floor currently of $130,000. She's identified, Chris, and I give them credit. They've identified a delay period because they're both delaying to 70. Explain to our listeners what a delay period is for the minimum dignity floor needs and why, because I like what she did. I'm going to give you her solution for her delay period. I think they were brilliant on this. But what is a delay? What is she talking about about her delayed period? So that is the period where you might be funding minimum dignity floor expenses with asset withdrawals while you delay the turning on of a secure income source, most commonly Social Security. We refer to that as the delay period. And the reason I have to break that up is it's really only after you've kind of got all your secure income turned on that we fully realize your lifelong need for additional secure income. So um, that's really where the conversation gets interesting about, you know, how you're going to generate enough secure income to cover. And in their case, a very large minimum dignity floor, that's a larger than typical minimum dignity floor. Um, but the delay period doesn't need to be funded with secure income. It, it can be with some secure income sources, but it, the necessity isn't there to the greater, to the extent that the post delay period, um, benefits from being funded by secure income. And that's because whenever you have a known end date, it makes the math of, of funding a shortage very simple. When you have an unknown end date, which is after the delay period and then for the rest of your life, period unknown, that's when secure income really shines. So that early period, some of their $8 million or whatever they have is going to be utilized to cover up until they turn their social security on. So that's the delay period for them. Right. That's why we often say delay periods are easy. We have the end date. If we knew when you were going to die, if we all came with expiration dates printed on our foreheads, and it's a good thing we don't. But if we all knew when we were going to pass away, if, if humans were actually born with that date, then retirement planning would be a lot easier. Because I could tell you exactly how much you could spend every year based on your assets, based on how they're growing, because I know when you're going to pass. But we don't know that. And that's what makes the post-delay period the most difficult because we don't have the end date. But she picked up on it. They have the end date. It ends at age 70. The 130000 folks, is just their minimum dignity floor. She does not indicate what they want to spend on fun especially early in life. Our idea is to help you guys come up with the fun number. How much of their 8 million, it's actually about 8.3-ish million, how much of that 8 plus million in assets can they truly spend on fun? Non-discretionary fun. They no, gave purely the, discretionary fun. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> yes. I was testing you again. Very good. You passed. Thank you. I do how listen much, most of the time. How, how much can they spend on fun? How much permission? What assets are the older them giving them permission to spend? Remember, they gave the promise to the older them that they will be taken care of. 
the old of them is going to return that promise with permission. In order to do that, we have to come up with the fun number. The older you isn't here, so we have to do the calculation, or you, you don't have to hire us. You do the calculation. You can figure this out. What is the fun number that the older you is going to give you permission to spend? Okay. She doesn't indicate what they spend on fun. So we can just guess. For the sake of argument, Chris, I'll let you be the official guesser. How much do you want to think during their go-go phase that they want to spend a year on fun? Oh, let's say $30,000. $2,500 a month. They're going to have more fun than that. They got $8.3 million. Live it up a little, Chris. $60,000? Whatever. You, 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 you be the expert there. Okay. So these people are going to spend 60000 a year on fun. Something tells me they're going to spend a little bit more than that in their go-go phase, but I could be wrong. I'm putting all this in so you can understand where this is going to go. She indicates that the $3.7 million of brokerage assets they have generates $100,000 a year of interest and dividends. Now, remember what I said. If they spend any of that, though, the interest and dividends will drop. If they don't spend any of that, they're going to have to take all of their money out of their IRAs and 401ks that they might want for fun if they need that 100000 They have 130000 minimum dignity floor, 60000 of fun, 190 total. Let's just call it 200000 total of income needs that they're going to have, especially during the delay period, which ends at 70, which pretty much coincides, I would say, with their go-go phase. I would say their go-go phase may even go, no pun intended, a little bit longer than age 70. So for the next 10 plus years, they're going to need to generate, in our assumptions, about 200000 a year of income. They're getting about 100000 of income from their brokerage account. But that means they can't spend the brokerage account now because they need that $100,000. they are not turning the Social Security on for at least 10 more years if they both wait to 70, 11 more years, actually. So you can see some of the calculation, folks, that they got to start thinking about. She keys in on the delay period. The delay period, she says, and I'm assuming she's talking just for her minimum dignity floor. The hundred and thirty thousand. She's saying that they are going to construct a bond ladder. What she doesn't tell me is if the bond ladder is being constructed with brokerage assets. If it is, her hundred thousand a year of income is going to be dropping. She needs to factor that in. Or if she is going to structure it with IRA assets. Or are they planning on using their $300,000 Roth? She doesn't indicate anything there at all. My gut tells me with about 4.1, 4.2 million in always taxable assets, not counting the 420,000 she has in an inherited IRA, which I just remembered because she did email me separately. She's going to spend that down during the delay period. So there's a little bit of my uh, mystery solved. 
She's going to spend the I, the inherited IRA down during the delay period to help cover. So I assume some of the bond ladder is being built into her inherited IRA. She makes clear this is not a bond ladder for income. This is a bond ladder for spending. They're going to time it that a bond will mature each year from now until 70 that will give them enough money to cover their minimum dignity floor. Some of that's going to come from the inherited IRA. I would suspect, Chris, they might be taking the rest from their normal IRA, trying to maybe reduce future RMDs. I can see they're the same age. They're going to if need a certain amount of income for the rest of their life. Their RMDs, whether one of them or two of them are alive, are going to be the same but their tax brackets will dramatically change at the death of the first spouse. I can see a pretty good chance that there might be a significant widow, widower tax penalty. So my gut tells me if they're taking that into consideration, they may be looking at trying to spend down the IRA in addition to the inherited IRA, spend down their IRA with this bond money. But they're going to have to look at their current tax situation because she's still going to be working for a few more years. She doesn't indicate if her salary covers all their needs or not. So there's a lot of moving parts here, folks. I'm just sharing with you what I'm seeing as I read their email. But conceptually, follow what Chris and I are describing. It's going to be, except for all these what ifs, and only they can answer because I don't have enough information here in front of me. It's fairly easy to construct what they're going to need during the delay period because they know when it ends. They've crunched the numbers. They have a pretty good idea of what they're going to be spending on minimum dignity floor. I assume they're going to be increasing it for reasonable rates of inflation, reflective of food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care. So funding the delay period is rather easy. And I think these people have ample assets to do it. And I see no need whatsoever for them to consider any type of annuity between now and 70. In fact, delaying Social Security to 70 is in effect buying an annuity because the money that they would have been collecting in Social Security is instead being debited from their assets. So they are buying future income, higher future inflation-adjusted income. Before we jump the the fence, Chris, and go to the post-delay period question of hers, Anything else on the delay period you want to cover? I think they might be being trying to be too precise with their methodology and funding the minimum dignity floor, having a bond ladder with a bond maturing each and every year. That's assuming they can perfectly predict the future and and know what their minimum dignity floor will be as far as costs go. And in reality, there are many elements of the minimum dignity floor that are more volatile than than predictable. We know they'll be in there and on average – uh, have a pretty good idea of what they might be, but I think they're they might be um, over analyzing this, um, trying to be too precise uh, in that approach. Not that it would wouldn't work, but because they have a lot of other assets to absorb a year when it was a bit higher. But I don't know that there's a lot of advantage to doing that versus a, a pool of money that matures every two or three years to fund two or three years worth of spending. But um, so. 
I just wanted to point that out because I didn't want people to have the false impression that we're making these predictions of an expense in a given year. And we're so confident that that's correct, that we're going to, you know, have particular assets mature at that exact dollar amount. And we know we're going to nail it. That's giving financial planning way too much credit. Oh, without a doubt. When we, when we're working with clients on this folks, we often will tell them that we're estimating what they may need in a given year. We often do lump sum two or three years worth of estimated expenses together. And we set up our, we call it a spending ladder. We might use individual bonds. We might use individual uh, MIGAs, multi-year guaranteed annuities. We might use brokered CDs or any number of, of, of principal protected um, vehicles, if you will, that mature and pay out at a stated point in time. We generally don't do it annually either. We will group them together. But we also tell clients, you might need a little bit more, you might need a little bit less in any given year. If there's less, if there's money left over, don't spend it on fun. That's not a green light to take, oh, right. I've got an extra $10,000 this year that I thought I was going to spend on minimum digging for, but son of a gun, I don't need to. Hey, let's go on that trip. No, 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 no. You leave it in your minimum dignity floor checking account. We always tell people you should have two checking accounts in retirement. One is to cover minimum dignity floor. The other is fun. Do not move from the minimum dignity floor checking account during the delay period until the delay period is fully over. And even then, I'd be a little cautious because you might have 10000 extra this year. You might be 20000 short next year. And that's where that 10000 would come in handy. And you're still going to be short and you might have to dip into other assets. And don't hesitate to do that. You don't have to be anal on this. You can take from fund reserve and use it for minimum dignity floor and just replace it later. So do keep that in mind. We, we tell our clients we don't have to nail this. There's plenty of assets here. So if we're short, we can make it up from, from another reserve and then you can replace those dollars later. It's the post-delay period she gets into. But she does make mention. We don't have a long-term care policy, but it seems like we should have enough in assets to cover that. I'm going to say before I continue on, I agree with her. With $8.3 million, I feel there's enough there. But you need to subtract out what your reserve for aging is. How many years do you want to protect for one of you or for two of you? Move those assets and don't put them in the fun category. You can only spend a dollar once. Do keep that in mind. Go back and listen to our fun number series we did. This all will make sense. So then she considered, in my scenario, what do you think would be the triggering event for us to buy an annuity? Should I do it when I retire in a few years? We are never going to have enough guaranteed income we can clearly see to cover our minimum dignity floor. Does that mean you think we should buy an annuity right when I retire? Before Chris chimes in, I'm going to say no. We just tried to explain. You hope to retire in three to five years. I, I'm extrapolating from your email. So let's just say you retire in, in, in three years at age 63. I'm, I'm, I know you're 59 now. I'm just going to assume you turn 60. You're going to work three more years, 63. You've put a spending ladder in place to cover you to 70, taking care of your minimum dignity floor. 
You don't need to buy an annuity then. Remember, folks, the older you are, the more money, dollar for dollar, you will get out of an annuity. We also don't feel, especially some of the assets you have, you need to annuitize the delay period because it has an end date, because you've done the calculations and you know the dollars you need. They may not be exact, like Chris said, but you'll be on the target, maybe not the bullseye. You don't necessarily need to go out and annuitize any of that. Instead, you should be concentrating on 70 and beyond. It's that period because there's no end date that an annuity might come in handy. But it's not a decision for the 59-year-old you to make. It's going to be a decision for the 70-year-old you. And by you, I mean plural you because you and your husband are the same age. It's for the 70-year-old you to make. But what you do need to do is figure out out of your 8.3 million, how much you're going to need to reserve. Pull out of the fund calculation. You got to pull out your aging reserve, any guaranteed inheritance you want to leave your children and your minimum dignity. And that takes precedence over everything because you must promise the older you. Their food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare will be taken care of. And they will give you permission to spend on fun. We're not going to give you. We're advocating for the older you. We're like advocates here. We're not giving you permission yet to spend on fun until you solve the post-delay shortage. And here's where not necessarily buying an annuity. The 70-year-old is going to make this decision. But what is the 59 excuse me, the 59-year-old you have to do. Chris is going to explain how at least using annuity tables, annuity actuaries, annuity companies, and when I say annuity tables, you're going to let the actuaries at the companies do it. How do we use the annuity industry, Chris, if these people were clients of ours, what would you be doing to help tell them out of this $8.3 million Here's how much you need to put aside to promise the older you that based on everything we know now, things can change in the future. But what we know now, here's about how much money you've got to pull out and reserve so the 70-year-old you makes the decision if they want an income annuity or if they want to continue to take withdrawals. How would you do that, Chris? How can an annuity or at least the annuity industry help this couple? Well, what we're trying to do again is just come up with an estimated amount of their 8 million that is reasonably reliable in estimating what they, you know, the extra protections they need to cover that shortage in their minimum dignity floor that she clearly mentions that they have. When I say shortage, you know, that's a relative term when you have $8 million, there's plenty of resources there to go around it's just a matter of the methodology that's being used to cover them. So to kind of give that older couple the financial power to make this decision, and they might even with a lot of assets like the simplicity of, a, of an income annuity uh, at some point that is, maybe it's more attractive to them than it was at 59. We, we don't know. Maybe less attractive. We uh, Giving them that decision later is is a powerful thing. But the younger you just has to make sure that the resources are there. Now, 
how we come up with that is we actually take a look at all the data in all the projections. Sounds like they've done their own projections, figure out what the shortage is expected to be based on the projections, and then go um, get an annuity quote for not the current 59-year-old, but maybe a 70-year-old or 72 or 75-year-old. Whenever it is you think you you might likely be making the decision ultimately to, to get an annuity uh, to cover the minimum dignity floor. And we can pull quotes like that. They're age-based, gender-based, and, you know, the state that you live in that causes them to vary just a little bit. But you can actually pull this up, and there's free resources on the Internet where you can, where you can price these out as well. Uh, we have an, a wholesale tool that we use personally, but we will put in the, the income that we believe that the couple or, or the survivor, if we've done the survivor analysis, uh, would need in the future – for the rest of their life, if they did turn on this income stream, this annuity stream, um, and uh, get the quote directly from the insurance company, they use they, you know they use their methodology and and their assumptions for how they can invest the money that you give them to have them afford to give you this lifetime commitment of payments. And it's there's there's other methodology that could be used. This is not the only one to come up with this, but that's. You know, we like using them because they are kind of experts on what it really costs to generate that kind of income um, for the life of an individual. So that's where we get the number. But again, that number is the number they need maybe when they're 70 or 75. Um, and then we make an adjustment back to today, uh, a type of time value of money adjustment, uh, present value adjustment at, an, at some uh, reasonable rate of return as the discount rate. And we then have converted for them that money they need at 75, what they might need at 60 as a set aside. And then that number, what's where it becomes useful in our approach is that number then becomes one of the subtractions that gets people to their minimum or to their fund number. So um, even if you have no intention of ever buying an annuity, this is a reasonable way of coming up with the lump sum that might be viewed as needing to be set aside. So that's why it's useful even in a case like this where they probably have enough assets where the longevity risk isn't a fear for them. Other people will face that, and that you know makes this method probably even more valuable. But there's still value in a case like this. Right. A couple of things I want to add, and Chris, if you covered these, I apologize. But I want to make sure a few things. When you do the calculations, uh, you can go to a company or a website like Immediate Annuities or other ones. We don't use them. We, we have much more industrial strength, if you will, uh, software programs that feed directly to the carriers. And we can get uh, different quotes, but you all don't have access to that. But you can go, I think, to their website and others and get Immediate Annuity quotes couple of things to keep in mind. You're not going to pull a quote at your age today. Let's just assume age 70 is, is going to be their break even, the, the, the beginning of their delay period, excuse me, the end of their delay period, the beginning of the post-delay period. So they would, when they run a quote, run it from age 70. What would a 70-year-old need? And they should be looking at their minimum dignity for shortage, they should try to project the inflationary pressures on that shortage. In other words, about on average, 
And can you do it quickly? Explain to them how you do the calculation, Chris, the, the growth they look at today and then at death and do the, the, the income, excuse me, the interest calculation. Do you want to walk them through what you do, how you figure out that growth rate that the inflationary pressure on their personal minimum dignity floor might be? Well, we've we've done when we're doing this, we've done a full blown projection of their expenses and their income so current income sources out uh, into the future, so we can actually just observe in the data the the shortage, which is the difference between your existing uh, secure income in their case, social security, and the size of their minimum dignity floor each and every year. So we can observe very easily what the expected growth rate of that shortage might be. And it's that growth rate that's needing to be used in the pricing of the annuity, like I uh, discussed before. Okay. And then you can look and let's just say it's a 6% year growth rate on your shortage. Make sure you build that into the quoting software that you're using. That will give you what an insurance company would want today if you were 70 to cover those income needs. So let's say your shortage starts at 60,000. I'm just making that number up out of thin air. It could be 20,000. I don't know. Let's just say your shortage is 60 and it's growing at 4%. You can type that in and they'll tell you, the quote software will say what an insurance company would want today because they're assuming you're 70 already. For a 70-year-old today to receive $60,000 a year of income growing at, did I say 3 or 4%? I forget. Growing at uh, 4% for the rest of their lives. That gives you how much the insurance company would want. Then we use 3.5% on our discount rate. Very achievable. You could use a higher discount rate, and it means your net present value would be less today, meaning you could keep more in fun and put less in reserve. We use three and a half. We feel it's achievable. And for those who want to lock in all protections, you can start to get uh, brokered CDs and MIGAs and even individual bonds uh, with a, a maturity date uh, of 10 years into the future that are paying more than three and a half percent. So you can kind of minimize that risk as well if you'd like. That's totally up to you. If you want to use a four, five, six percent discount rate and reserve even less money today, that's totally up to you. But what we do is that's our initial calculation. We discount it back three and a half percent and we would tell you, and I am telling you, listener, that's about how much money you should put aside. You're asking, should you buy an annuity when you retire? No, because you already satisfied the minimum, excuse me, the delay period, minimum dignity for a shortage. What you do have to do when you retire is put money aside. And we're trying to explain to you how you should be doing that calculation. You should make sure you build the inflation rate that you want applied to your minimum dignity floor into your annuity calculation. So you can get a lump sum of money that's factoring in that stated growth of whether it's four, five, six percent per year. Then you can discount it down three and a half, put that money aside. You don't have to do the calculation now, you're still working. You can wait a couple of years until you retire, but that's the calculation you should do when you retire. And rather than buy an annuity, you got your minimum dignity for a delay period spending ladder of bonds set up. 
you need the post-delay period. Then track it every year. It isn't a one and done at 60, 61, 62 years old, and you expect that to carry through to 70. Annuity pricing changes all the time. You should track this every year. Maybe you're going to need to reserve a little bit more if things don't quite work out. Maybe you're going to reserve a little bit less. The insurance company and their calculations will be using mortality tables, their own mortality tables that they're monitoring and updating. They'll be using uh, interest rates, current interest rates, which change all the time. And they'll also take your sex into account. If you're going to buy a single life or a joint life, they're going to take the sex of the oldest person into account. So there's all these variables that you wouldn't be able to do on your own and figure it out on your own. Let the professionals do it. That's what these companies do for a living. Your job is to just make sure the 70-year-old you has enough money to cover that shortage. And you don't mix that money in with your fun number. Again, for this listener with $8 million, that might not be an issue. For those listening with $1.5 million or $800,000 or $2 million, you may have to do these calculations and it becomes a little bit more disconcerting when you see your fund number dropping because you've got to be reserving. Don't fall to the temptation of saying, oh, well, we can reserve 100000 less and spend it on fun because I think we're going to be able to get double Jim's 3.5 discount rate. I think we're going to get seven. You can do that if you'd like. But there is some risk associated with that. And to us, you need to be making a promise to the older you. Not a gamble, a promise. Three and a half percent, we feel, is fairly reliable discount rate that you could say is a promise. Seven, eight, nine percent discount rate. I don't think it's a promise. I think that's the younger you trying to trick the older you into thinking, yeah, you're taken care of. Now I'm going to go buy that Tesla that I always wanted. And again, if that's what you want to do, that's totally up to you. But where I want you to see the the beauty of this is you can use the annuity industry to help you with this calculation. We're not saying this couple doesn't need an income annuity. It's clear they have ample assets and may be able to fund with withdrawals their income shortage. But most people are not going to have that luxury. But it's the older them, the age 70 them, 11 years from now. You could be 65 doing this. And maybe it's going to be the 76-year-old 11 years from now who's going to make the decision. The decision to buy an income annuity is made by the older you. We just want to make sure that there's enough money reserved. But there's another reason, Chris, we say this, and then we'll wrap up. I'll let you wrap this up because you're more pithy than me. There's another thing that we we talk about to people because we concede the younger you could buy a deferred income annuity today, this person and everyone listening, If you do the calculations and you think, oh, my goodness, I have a $30,000 a year shortage growing at 
3.8%. So I'm going to round it up to four. I need $30,000 a year beginning at age 75. I'm just making this up, but it could be a real person. At age 75, I need $30,000 a year growing at 4% for the rest of my life. I feel very confident in my numbers and my projections. I want to take care of that now at age 59. I don't want any risk. You could find an insurance company willing to say to you, give us X amount. Maybe X is 600,000. Again, making that number up. Give us 600,000 today. We will guarantee you at age 75, we will pay you 30,000 a year growing at 4%. And some will even take the 30,000 today, grow it at 4% and begin it in the future at that higher rate already. Why don't we recommend that, Chris? Well, we think this is a balancing act where there's benefits to retaining control over those assets until you see how more of your life plays out. For one thing, relying on projections for a shortage, excuse me, some 10 plus years out, that just is going to be less predictable, less less, uh, accuracy um, naturally than when you are dealing with the current year itself. So I think you get a better chance of matching the right size um, annuity to your needs if you wait and not use 10-year-old projections because that's what you're using by the time the income turns on in your example, maybe maybe even older than 10 years. And life changes, right? There's there's a chance that over that those coming years, something will happen and, and an annuity will become less attractive to you. Uh, than, than it was before. So we realize at some point you'll have to make a decision. It's not like you can just put this off forever. That defeats the purpose of having it. But um, if you're still relatively young in retirement, I think it's just on balance more beneficial to retain control of those assets yourself in case something changes and allows you then to fine tune it more with more near term numbers rather than projections that are out sometime. So that's kind of our preference. But if I mean, there's people who are antsy to do it, and they they don't want to be worrying about it during that 10 or 15 year uh, deferral or or delay period, you might call it a form of a delay when you're waiting for that uh, deferred annuity um, to, uh, to start making its payments to you. Um, and they want to set it and forget it right? Just kind of a get this all taken care of. What's the worst case? You have income coming in in 10 or 15 years. Uh, maybe you wished it'd be something different, but it's not like it's worthless. It's it's still income that you can use for anything that you want to use it for once it, uh, once it starts firing up. So um, our preference is not to do it that way, but, but I, could, I could see people have why they would be attracted to maybe doing it uh, with the deferred annuity approach. Right. And I wanted to wrap up here. And Chris, Chris took this perfectly to where I wanted to go. Next week, I'm going to start talking about some of these different types of annuities, because this what we described and we, we do feel people should invest those dollars and put them and make the decision later rather than buying an annuity today. But there are some annuities today that you can buy. So I want to start talking about them next week. There are deferred income annuities. There are deferred longevity annuities. 
And there are annuity riders that you can add to either a variable or fixed annuity that are called a living benefit. All three of those would accomplish what some people might be sitting there saying. Why would I want to put this money aside, Jim? I want to take care of it today. Remember, it's a promise, Jim. I want to make that promise now. I don't want to have to deal with it. There are some of you out there who'll do it. A lot of you wouldn't because you're Vanguard, VGs. You've been managing your own money. You're still young enough. You're into it. But we do run into people who a lot of times ask us, why, why should I hold off? I, I want to take care of this now. So we're going to next week start getting into a few of these different types of annuities. What's a deferred annuity? What's an immediate annuity? What's a fixed annuity? What's a variable annuity? And since I said on day one of this, all annuities have an income benefit, how do they all work in all these different style annuities? And that's what we're going to get into because the industry has attempted to solve Chris and I's concern, life changes. In my example, over the next 11 years or 15 years, I can't remember. We talked so many hypotheticals. I don't know which one. But if your income is going to begin in 11, 12, 14, 15 years from now, you could put it all in an annuity now and get that promise. Chris and I are against it because life changes. So insurance companies have attempted to overcome that The cynic in me says in an effort to get your money sooner so they can start charging fees on it. But they have attempted to overcome that by coming out with different types of annuities. They can come out with um, living benefits is mainly what they came out with. There's a few other options I'll get into that purport to give you the promise of future income with access to your assets at some point in time if you change your mind. It's not completely liquid like it would be if you Vanguardians put it in a well-diversified, balanced portfolio with Vanguard with a risk profile commensurate with uh, the time frame before you're going to need the money. So maybe more aggressive in year one of a 15-year period, but far less aggressive in year three, for instance, of the 15-year hold period or year 13, rather, when there's just uh, a couple of years left. They will offer you the income with the ability to get some money out. Is it worth it? I don't think so. And I'll get into it next week, why I'm hesitant on a lot of these products. Okay, that's where we want to leave off. Okay, sounds good. Well, um, we want to thank everybody for listening again. And uh, the reason why we're focusing so much on annuities, this is June is the uh, Annuity Awareness Month. So uh, each year in June, we focus more on on annuity education, we'll call it, and and maybe kind of sharing how we use annuities. So there's kind of uh, product education and then also maybe uh, how we view them fitting into many people's retirement plans, not everyone's. But... uh, Stick with us next week. We'll continue this uh, fine conversation. I don't know if it really is part of the email anymore. Uh, we're, no, no, her just email a, is done. Just a I natural extension now of conversation. Natural extension. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. yep. She's she's all set. At least I think she is. If yeah. she has any more questions, she can write. But yeah. I think we covered it for her. But again, I think it was a good example. Granted, it was an anomaly example with the eight million of assets. We concede that. But whether you have eight million, a million, or eight hundred thousand. 
the concepts that Chris and I described apply. Try to use them in your own calculation. And you can vilify and hate annuities, and that's fine. But you should get the education so the older you can decide if they want to continue to vilify and hate annuities. But you can also use the knowledge that the annuity companies have and their mortality tables and their actuaries and their estimates by getting the quotes. Don't try to figure out the number on your own on how much to reserve. Go straight to the source. Isn't that straight to the horse or something like that? But go go straight to the source and Use the insurance companies to your advantage. There's many websites out there, not as robust as the software Chris and I have, but for do-it-yourselfers, I think you can find and run calculations similar to the way Chris and I do. Sounds good. Well, thanks a lot, everybody. And we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's Jim jimhelps.com or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 